You know, we all know the statistics and, and, and we hear the, you know, that church attendance is down in this country and, um, you know, fewer people, fewer Americans go to church every Sunday. But there was a, a survey just the other week where they asked people who do go to church, why do you go to church? What are some of the reasons why you attend church? And two of the top reasons, of course, the number one reason was to connect with God. And the second or second or third, or I can't remember if it was second or the third one, but it was basically connect with people. So it, it was to connect with God and then it was to have that community, to have those relationships with other Christians. And Psalm 131 and 133 speak to that perfectly. They help us to answer the question, how do we connect with God and connect with other people in meaningful ways? How does that happen? You know, just showing up and sitting in a pew doesn't help you connect with God uh, or connect with other people. So how do we as a church, how do we as individuals, how can we begin to experience that deeper connection? And these two Psalms provide the key. Think about them like the, the, the bars of a cross. You've got the, the vertical and you have the horizontal. And Psalm 131 is, is like the vertical bar of the cross. It helps us to focus on how we connect with God individually. But then Psalm 133 is that horizontal bar of the cross. And it, it helps us to, to see the beauty and the power of unity, that horizontal relationship. So let's look at those two Psalms and we'll see that the, the, the first way, when we look at Psalm 131, the first way, the way that we can connect with God is we have to trust in God. And Psalm 131 is all about putting our trust in the Lord. David writes, My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have stilled and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. The first key to having a trusting relationship with God, to connecting with God, is right here in verse 1, and that is to have a humility before God. David writes about having humility before God, and he does it with three negative statements. He begins this psalm with three negatives. He really kind of denials about his character. His heart is not proud. His eyes are not haughty, meaning that they are not arrogant in how he looks at himself. And he doesn't try to reason out things that are too great or wonderful for him to understand. Now, as you, you know, most psalms begin with something very positive, you know, like we saw last week. You know, make a joyful noise to the Lord, shout to the Lord with joy. And they're usually very positive. So why does David start this psalm with such a negative tone? I mean, it almost sounds like David's been accused of something and he's denying it. And the Lord, no, I've not been that way. No, Lord, I'm not like that. What's going on in this passage? Well, I think David is acknowledging that he used to be that kind of person. Now, if you look back over David's life, which, and I know in our Sunday school classes, we've been studying through the life of David. So, in Sunday school, you've been doing this. So, you look back over David's life, you see that at times David was prideful, wasn't he? There were times that David did set his eyes on a prize that was far out of his reach. We know from David's life that he did at times 
try to arrogantly rule Israel based on his wisdom and strength. Paul wrote to the Corinthian Christians about their backgrounds, about the kinds of people they used to be. He's writing to these Corinthian Christians and he says, you know, you were idolaters and adulterers. And you were liars, and you were thieves. And, and he goes on this, this description, but then he goes on to remind them. He says, and such were some of you. That's what that you used to be. That used to be your identity, but not any longer. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so God similarly has been at work in David's life. The pride, the selfishness, the ambition that had shaped David's life were replaced with humility, grace, and dependence on the Lord. And so David now acknowledges that the Lord, He is God. It is He that has made us and not we ourselves. We are but His sheep. He is the good shepherd, the one in charge, the one who leads and feeds his flock. David now fully submits himself to the Lord, and he no longer thinks so highly of himself. Humility. The Bible has a lot to say about humility. It's a, it's a core characteristic of the Christian life. Micah 6.8 says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk how? Humbly with your God. I mean, we think about justice and mercy. Those are big concepts. Humility is right up there with them. In James 4.10, James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, said, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. And similarly to that, in Proverbs 3.34, it tells us that God mocks the proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. So rather than thinking too highly of ourselves, we need to take a step back. We need to remember that God's ways are deeper than our ways. Just as we heard in Isaiah 55 in our Old Testament reading, His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And that's what David is getting at here in the last part of this verse, in verse 1, when he says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. See, we have a tendency to lean a little too much on our own understanding, don't we? We become a little too wise in our eyes sometimes, and that can get us into trouble, especially today. And I mean, we've got, we've got so much information accessible at our fingertips. Right, if I have a question about something, I can just pull it up on my phone. Or, you know, if you have, you know, like a little Google Home Mini, you don't even have to, you just say, hey, Google, you know, give me the answer to this. We have instant access to so much information. We have so much scientific knowledge and understanding. We've made so many amazing technological and medical advancements and achievements. It's so easy for us to get a little full of ourselves, isn't it? And especially when we can so easily get out our phones or our tablets or our computers and we can tweet our opinions to the world. Right? You can get in those Facebook debates and think that just because you can put it out there that that somehow means, hey, I'm important. You better listen to what I have to say. We need to remember 
we don't have all the answers. Amen? We can't see into anyone's heart and judge anyone's motives. And we need to remember there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know the one who holds the answer. Christ calls us to choose a path of humility. No longer self-elevated, self-exalting, or self-centered. No longer pursuing my path, but the Lord's path. But the second thing that David touches on here is we also have to have a holy hush before God. In verse 2, he says, I have stilled and quieted my soul. So David has gone from sort of that negative stance in verse 1. He's taking a more positive approach here because now he has humbled himself before the Lord. He realizes that he's not the center of the universe. God is. And so now David can experience shalom, true peace that comes from a sense of well-being and wholeness. Because he is no longer fighting with God for supremacy. He has surrendered. David may sit on the throne of Israel, but it's the Lord God who sits on David's throne. And because of that, he can still and quiet his soul. Rather than worry and fretting about how to solve all the problems on his own with his own wisdom and his own strength, David can now be still and quiet before God, waiting for Him to give him the wisdom and the strength and the direction that he needs. David wrote in Psalm 27, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Who do you trust in? One of the reasons I think we worry and fret so much today, and anxiety is a growing epidemic in our culture. Why are people so anxious, so afraid, so stressed out? I think it's because we trust in ourselves. Or we're trusting in man-made institutions and systems. But when we learn to look to the Lord for help, for courage and wisdom and strength, that's where we find lasting peace. Jesus said that when we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, God will give us all the things that He knows that we need. And Jesus says that those are the things the pagans run after. In other words, that's what they're looking for. That's what they're striving for. That's what they're wishing for. The the, the pagans spend their lives consumed with getting these things that God knows that we need. So it's not like a, a Porsche. You know, it's not like, you know, just the biggest TV you can buy. He's talking about things that we actually need. Shelter and food and water and clothing. But the difference is, is that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we can work for those things. We can work for a living and we need to make a living. And we need to be good stewards and we need to take care of our bodies. But rather than being like the pagans who are consumed with those things, we can work for those things, resting in the assurance that God will provide our needs. And we can enjoy our work. And we can do what we do for the glory of God with a grateful heart as an act of worship, not self-dependence. Does that make sense? It's a total paradigm shift for some people and how they think and feel and act. Because I have some news for you. Despite what people may, may think, being busy, overworked, overbooked, distracted and stressed is not a sign of importance or sophistication. It's not. 
And our culture elevates that. I, mean, I, can, I, I find myself doing this all the time. People say, how, how are things going at church? And my, my instinct is to say, man, things are busy. Man, we're just, we're just stuff going on. I'm just overwhelmed. How are you doing? How are you? Oh, man, whew, I'm, I'm busy. Because somehow we think, oh, that makes me seem important. That means I'm working hard, right? If I'm busy and stressed out? No. And we shouldn't look down on those people who aren't stressed and busy and overworked. Those people that seem to have time for a hobby. Or those people that seem to have time to sit down with their family and have a meal. Those people that just kind of are going through their life and they're not stressed out. And they take their time. They drive the speed limit, the nerve of them. Maybe those people have something right. Maybe, just maybe, those people have learned to trust God and enjoy the simple things in life and to receive life's gifts with gratitude instead of worrying about tomorrow. And that's why David here, in the last part of verse 2, compares himself to a child. He characterizes his relationship with God as one of the most trusting one of the most elemental, intimate, dependent relationships in all of human experience. The child doesn't try to be its mother's equal. And, and the word here for child is like a small child. Think like five, four or five-year-old child. The child doesn't try to be its mother's equal, nor does it try to be independent of its mother. Rather, the weaned child though still can't fully take care of himself, he is still old enough to feed himself. He isn't carried by his mother everywhere, but he still walks close by his mother's side. He has a relationship of trust, of dependence. That's the same kind of relationship we should have with our Father in heaven. Jesus put it this way. He said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love that verse. Does that characterize your relationship with God? Do you know the peace of Christ? Because you're casting your cares upon the One who so deeply cares for you. Are you seeking His kingdom and His righteousness and trusting Him to, to fill in the gaps? Are you working on your own or are you working hand in hand and side by side with the Lord your Shepherd? We should have a relationship of humility, but also of just that holy hush, that be still and know that He is God. That the sheep that can lay down in the green pastures and beside the still waters because they know that their shepherd is there. Is that your relationship with God today? And then the third thing that David tells us about this trusting relationship with God, this how do we connect with God, he says in verse 3, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. We must have hope in God. And if you think about it, childlike trust always has an element of hope, doesn't it? And so when we trust God, that means that we have a positive confidence that He's going to work out all things for His glory and our good. 
Hope isn't a feeling that you feel. Hope is a choice that you make. And it's a choice to believe, to decide to live our lives on a holy assumption that God is always working for a positive outcome. That is hope. When you don't get good news from the doctor. When your boss calls you and tells you you're going to have to cut your hours. Or you're being laid off. Hope says, I may not understand why, but I understand who. I don't know what is going to happen, but I trust that somehow God is at work in this. And He will work all of this together into a story that is more beautiful and powerful than one I could ever write. That's hope. Corey Ten Boom said, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. So regardless of your circumstances this morning or the personal storm that maybe has blown into your life, place your firm hope in the Lord. Because He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will see you through the deep waters. You will pass the fire and not be consumed. And He will set your feet on solid ground. See, God didn't create us to just kind of chug along on our own and pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. He created us to live in dependence on Him. And it's when we live in dependence on God that we experience peace and rest and joy. And it's when we try to live a life of independence on our own, apart from God, that we experience a life of anxiety and stress and worry. Which do you want? (laughs) Which sounds better, right? Now this flies in the face of our cultural ideals of autonomy and self-sufficiency and independence because we think that real maturity means that you kind of, you don't depend on anybody, right? You're a self-made man or a self-made woman. We talk about cutting the apron strings. But when it comes to our relationship with God, don't cut the apron strings. That's your lifeline. You need that dependence on God. So if you're feeling disconnected from God this morning, ask yourself, am I living in humble trust in the Lord or in prideful self-reliance? Am I taking the time to be still and know that He is God? Where am I placing my hope? Do I have any hope? Or have I allowed myself to be consumed with negativity and doubt and cynicism? Humility and a peaceful hush of dependence and trust in our Heavenly Father. Hope that God is in control and that while I can't see what's around the next corner, God sees everything from beginning to end. These are the essential elements of a life lived in connection with God. So then how does this then translate to this? How does this life of holy, humble dependence and hope in God, how does that connect me also with the people around me? Well, that's where Psalm 133 comes in. And in this one, David talks about the importance of living in unity with God's people. So we live in trust in God, but then we live in unity with God's people. Let's look at Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, 
running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows His blessings, even life forevermore. Psalm 133 is a beautiful affirmation of the value of unity. Unity in families, in communities, in a nation, but especially unity among God's people. And here David builds his case for unity around two metaphors that illustrate why it's good and pleasant for brothers and sisters to live together in unity, but also they illustrate how they result in blessings forevermore. So in verse 1, David first praises unity. The praise of unity in verse 1. He says how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. So David begins by describing unity among God's people as good and pleasant. Now, the Hebrew word for good is tov. It's the same word that's repeated again and again and again in Genesis 1, right? God looked at all that he had made and he said it is good. It is tov. And he does that five times. And then he finally says that it is very tov, right? It is very good when he creates man and woman. This word means excellent, desirable, but it also means useful. In other words, when God declares things good, He's saying, that's going to work. Yeah, that'll work. That's useful. Now, the word pleasant means something that is sweet, lovely, delightful. So David is describing unity as something that is excellent and useful. It's something sweet and delightful. It's something we should all desire and enjoy and put to good work for our benefit and for the benefit of those around us. But David goes on to describe unity in familial terms. He says that it is good and pleasant when brothers live together in unity. Now this phrase, when brothers live together, that phrase occurs one other time in all of the Old Testament. And it's in Deuteronomy 25.5 where Moses is talking about the, the Leverite marriage, which it's a social custom where sons would continue to live together in their father's household to take care of each other's families. Specifically, if you had a, a brother who died and, and he didn't leave a, a child for his wife, she would be brought into the family and given to another brother. But that son that would come from that union would still be considered the deceased brothers, not his. And so this phrase, when brothers live together, it was about family unity. It was about putting the families, your brother's needs, ahead of your own need. But this psalm isn't necessarily about family, though it certainly can apply to our families. This is a psalm of ascent. Now what that means is that this psalm was sung by pilgrims as they were coming from, I don't know, Nazareth or you know somewhere in Galilee or Jericho or on the coast, wherever in Israel they lived. If, if they were coming together, maybe for Passover or the Day of Atonement, and they were coming up to Jerusalem to worship and make their sacrifices, this was one of the psalms they would sing. And they would meditate upon this. So this song was sung on an occasion where God's people would come together to worship, to fellowship, to pray, to eat together, to dwell together, to devote themselves to the teaching of God's Word. Does this sound familiar? Sounds like Acts chapter 2, doesn't it? Sounds like how the early church is described in Acts chapter 2. 
See, in Acts chapter 2, the Jewish people were celebrating Pentecost, the festival of first fruits in Jerusalem. And many of them had come 50 days before to celebrate Passover. So they've been kind of camping out and hanging out there for, you know, for the past, you know, month and a half in Jerusalem. And then on this particular day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes, the church is born, thousands of these Jews believe in Jesus Christ, and so they decide to extend their stay. They're going to stay even longer because they want to be with other followers of Jesus. They want to learn what it means to be a disciple of Christ. But these people aren't from Jerusalem. They're from, they're from you know, who knows where. And they don't, they don't have any, they're not, they're not working. They don't have anywhere to live. So what does the early church do? They start to pull their resources. They sell possessions. So they can put this new brother in Christ up for a few nights so he can continue to stay and worship and learn and grow in their faith. See, just as worship is costly, we talked about that last week. Last week we talked about the sacrifice of praise. Worship, genuine worship, should cost you something. Well, so does fellowship. True Christian fellowship. And I'm not talking about bringing a casserole on Wednesday night. That's not the kind of cost I'm talking about. True Christian fellowship should cost us something. We have to make sacrifices for each other. We have to put each other's needs before our own needs. I have to not just look out for myself, but consider you as well. And sometimes that means I have to inconvenience myself. Sometimes that means I don't get my way. That's unity. That's fellowship. And it can cost us. When God made Adam and Eve the first family, the first human community, He didn't just declare it tov, good. He said it was very good. And this word pleasant is also the same word that's used in talking about harmony in music. So it's a Hebrew word that talks about what we heard this morning. Didn't you think the music was pleasant this morning? Amen? It was pleasant. When we live together in unity, it's like we're all playing the same song. And we're in tune and we're in rhythm. But some of us are playing a trombone. Some of us are playing a French horn. Some of us are playing a trumpet. Some of us are playing a flute. Some of us are playing a piano. We're playing different instruments, but we're playing the same music. Does that make sense? That's unity. And, and, and we're playing our part in God's symphony. Unity means oneness. And it's what Jesus prayed for in our New Testament reading in John 17. It's what the first church demonstrated as Acts 4.32 says. They had one heart and mind. And it's what Paul desired for the Corinthian Christians when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Unity. But we must not confuse unity with uniformity. Right? Unity does not mean that we're all carbon copies of each other. It's not uniformity. It's not that we're all exactly the same and we all think the same thing and we feel the same thing and we have the same opinions and we like the same music and we like the same food. You know, we'd all be bringing squash casserole to the fellowships, right? That's no good. We'd all be playing trombones. It's not uniformity. 
In fact, Paul talks about how we are different, how God has given us different gifts and put us in different places in the body. He's given us different roles and different jobs and different responsibilities. But we have one Lord and one faith and one spirit and one baptism. Unity is as good and pleasant as an orchestra that's in harmony and rhythm. Many instruments playing one song. And unity gives us a sense of completion and harmony and peace. And David goes on to illustrate that with two pictures of unity. We see in verses 2 and 3, the pictures of unity. And the first one is this picture of anointing the high priest. Aaron was Moses' brother. He was the first high priest. And when a priest was anointed, this costly, extravagant Fragrant oil was poured on their head. You might remember the story when the woman broke the alabaster jar and anointed Jesus' feet. And it says the fragrance of it filled the house. And you remember Judas looked at that and he shook his head and he said, how wasteful. That was a whole year's salary. Unity is extravagant. Some people might even say it's wasteful. Christian unity is like extravagant love, being upended, broken, and poured. Not just sprinkled, not just a dab here and a dab there, but just broken and upended and poured. And look, it doesn't just stay on the head. It runs down into the beard. It runs down into the collar. It runs down into the folds of the robe. The oil flows and it overflows down and down and down It cannot be contained. It cannot be restrained. It's out of control. It takes on a life of its own and it covers and saturates everything. And when we serve each other in Christian love, that power, that testimony, that grace, it runs wild. Love, when it's poured out, has no limits. It's contagious. It spreads and it's passed on and it ends up in places you would never imagine. The second picture is it's also like the dew on Mount Hermon. Now, here's a picture of Mount Hermon. You can see that. And it's snow-covered. It's a pretty tall mountain. And it's way up there where that red triangle is, okay? It's at the very northern border of Israel. Uh, It's on the border of Israel and Lebanon. It's 9,200 feet in elevation. And it can be seen from the Dead Sea 120 miles away. The mountaintop stays snow-covered two-thirds of the year, and it receives over 60 inches of precipitation a year. And it is the snowmelt and the rain and the dew of Hermon that's the source of the Jordan River. And all the water, pretty much, in, in the Promised Land. So rain, snow, dew, these are things that fall from heaven. They're gifts from God to a a parched land that otherwise would have no water. And no one can create it, right? We can't create the dew. We can't make it come. We can't make it go away, even though you might want to, because it's pretty humid outside these days. It's a gift that we must just receive. And similarly, it's the blessing of God that creates unity. We can't create unity. We can work toward it. We can try to get along. But we can't create unity. Unity only comes from the Spirit of God. It flows over us like oil. It descends on us like dew. And it brings God's blessing of life. It is when we first connect with God in humility and with a holy hush and with hope 
that God's Spirit and that promise of eternal and abundant life comes upon us. And it breaks down the barriers of sin in our hearts. It crucifies our self-centeredness. And it heals our hurt and broken relationships. It is the Holy Spirit coming upon us who restores us and reconciles us. He's the one who makes us one. Think of the dew of Hermon falling on these rugged hills. These, these, these rocky slopes. You can see it's snow-covered and it, it, it's, it's gray and it's rocky. Not a lot of vegetation up there. Now, if the, if the dew and the snow and the rain, if it just stays up there where there's no plant life, does it do any good? No. But it doesn't stay up there. It runs down. Like the oil into Aaron's beard and on his robes. It runs into the Sea of Galilee and down into the Jordan River and even to the mountains of Zion. God's blessings, the blessing of unity, the power of brothers and sisters loving each other and serving each other in unity, it spreads and it flows and it blesses so many more people. Now notice here in verse 3, I'm sorry, yeah, at the end of verse 3, that it's, it's not until the end of this psalm that God is even mentioned. Moses is mentioned and Mount Hermon is mentioned. God isn't even mentioned till the very end of the psalm. It's as if God, it's as if David is saying that God is that hidden source of well-being. Just like you can't see where the dew comes from. As Jesus said, you can't see where the Spirit is coming from or where it's going. God is there working in His people. And so David ends with that summary of the power of unity there at the very end. Because it is there where God's people dwell in close unity that the Lord bestows His blessing. By His sovereign will, God has ordered that His grace will be bestowed where His people live together. Jesus even said in Matthew eighteen twenty, For where two or three gather in My name, there I am with them. And I believe it is where God finds true unity that He pours out the fullness of His Spirit. This is the blessing of His eternal favor. It's where we find the fullness of life, what Jesus called abundant life. This morning we're going to be beginning the process of our deacon selection. At the end of this service, we're going to nominate some men to be deacons. In the book of Acts, it tells us that one of the duties of the first men that were set aside to serve the church is, is deacons. That one of their tasks was to preserve the unity of the church. You had two different groups in the church that were kind of fighting with each other. And one group thought they were getting preferential treatment. You know, they thought the other group was getting preferential treatment and they were getting left out. And the church was beginning to splinter. And the apostles knew we need somebody to come in here and to help us preserve the unity. So as you begin to circle these names here at the end of the service, ask yourself, who do I see? that's humble before God? Who do I see that lives in trusting dependence upon the Lord? Who is it that I see that puts their hope in God? Who in this church do I see working toward and preserving unity, putting others before themselves? That's how we should all be in the church. You know, a cross, like I said, isn't a cross that both the horizontal and the vertical. So, we can't experience a deep unified connection with other people unless we first experience it with God, right? 
If you really want to have a good relationship with other Christians and other people, you've got to have a good relationship with God. But the opposite is also true. You can't have a right relationship with God if you're not right in your relationship with other people. Jesus said, if you can't forgive others, don't come asking God to forgive you. If you can't be right with other Christians, how can you be right with God? How can you, how can you love the God you cannot see if you can't love your brother who you do see? So, which comes first, the chicken or the egg, right? Which is, do, do, I, do I work on my relationship with God first or do I work on my relationship with others first? Yes. Both. It's not an either or. It's not a first and second. Because it's all a gift received from God. It's all the power of His Holy Spirit as you submit yourself to Him and you let Him work in your heart. This morning, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you come to that point in your life where you've humbled yourself and you've realized the kind of person that you've been and so you confess your sins and you reach out in faith-filled hope that Jesus will forgive you and save you? Have you done that this morning? If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never cast your sins upon Him and asked Him to give you His grace and forgiveness, I invite you to do that here in just a few minutes. This morning, do you have a church family? A group of Christ followers that you've committed yourself to, to dwell together in unity with. I'll tell you here at First Baptist Church, you ask anybody, we're not a perfect church because we're filled with imperfect people, right? There is no such thing as a perfect church. But we're a loving family. And we're on a journey together to seek God and to be the church that He would have us to be to reach this community for Christ. Maybe this morning God is leading you and your family to unite with this family of faith and to grow in unity. But one more thing I want to ask you to consider this morning. Who in your life do you need to forgive? Who in your life do you need to seek forgiveness from? so that you can dwell with them in unity? What is it that's holding you back? What is it that's getting in the way of you experiencing the kind of blessings that God wants for you and in your family and here in this church because you're just letting things get in the way of unity? This altar is open for you to do business with God this morning. I will be standing down front to receive you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these beautiful pictures in the Psalms. These beautiful pictures of the kind of relationship that you want to have with us as a, as a, as a father and a child. And, and as our father and as your children, you also long for us to live together as brothers. This is a family. And I pray you would help us to grow in our love for one another. To grow in unity. To grow in dependence upon you. Father, I pray You would speak and work in the hearts of the people here today. Maybe there's someone who needs to begin that relationship with You for the first time. Maybe there's someone that, that, that they just know this is home and they want to come and they want to plant their lives here and to grow and serve. Father, I pray for those whose hearts are hurt and broken this morning and they're struggling. And I pray You would work in them with Your grace. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?